What happens when you finally meet people who inspire you in your chosen profession? Go. Hello and welcome to Fuse, the global podcast for the PRCA, where we explore the evolving landscape of global communications. We bring together leaders from public relations, politics, business, academia, and media to spark new ideas and ignite innovation. My name's Dan Gold, and on today's episode, I meet two people who really do inspire me. Stephen Waddington is a business advisor who helps agencies and communications teams make better decisions. He is a visiting professor at Newcastle University and a PhD research student at Leeds Business School. Stephen has founded and led agencies including Ketchum, Metia, Rainio PR and Speed. He is the former president of the CIPR and the author of several books on public relations theory and practice, including Exploring PR and Management Communication. With over 20 years of experience in helping organizations to articulate their purpose and create value and deliver social impact, Sarah Waddington is really a pioneer of best practice. Her CBE was awarded in June 2021 for services to public relations and the voluntary sectors. And she's also been awarded the CIPR's Sir Stephen Talents Medal for Exceptional Achievements in PR. Before we go anywhere, it is such an <laughs> honor to have you both here on Fuse. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah. We're actually in separate buildings. I, I work from home and I've sent him to the office, so it should all work beautifully and no arguments, hopefully. <laughs> oh, is this a strategy? I like this already. Um, <laughs> you have been named by many people and I. Uh, your names in the industry have been uh, synonymous with best practice and strategy and, you know, really helping others. Um, known in my circle as the PR power couple, how do you make sure that you um, really protect and forge your own identities? And second part to that, when you're making sure that you protect your own identities and really uh, have your presence individually, how do you then effectively work together? Should I feel that first? It's, it's yeah. couples therapy. First question, we're in couples therapy. Go on, you start, Sarah. Uh, I was going to say that I'm not posh and you're definitely not back, so I don't know about power couple, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Thank you. It's really kind words. Um, that's a really interesting question, but do you know what it is? I don't think there is an issue with us, hopefully, having our own individual identity because we are very driven by our own purpose. Uh, and actually probably one of the reasons that we first started working together and, and we kind of matched, there was a kind of meeting of minds because we're both very driven, we're both very determined, we're both very industry focused and passionate about what we do. And we all, we always want to be better. We push ourselves to be better. And now I've just got somebody else to bully into doing what I want and to push to be better too. So it kind of works really well, both as a working marriage, as a, a working partnership and the, and the marriage itself. So um, it's an it's an interesting one. But the, the very basic truth is that we're just very boring. We're the people who will cook dinner and then when we're sitting down, everybody else is talking about nice things or booking a holiday. We're like, 
ooh, we really need to investigate that latest AI tool. Or he'll say, as bad. we're literally lying to go to sleep, he'll say, oh, we need to do duh, 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 duh. And it's, it's, the reality is as simple Quite as that. Dull. Quite dull. Yeah. Um, I've got to build on that. I think we're, we're each other's um, greatest advocates, but also fiercest, fiercest critics. Um, so there's a level of scrutiny in the relationship that um, I've never had. You know, I've been, worked in numerous professional partnerships. I've never had. Um, and that comes from, I think, the, the honesty and openness of our personal relationship. Um, and that always takes us to a better place. So um, anything I write of substance, um, the work I do, the research work I do at Leeds, um, focused on management, you know, goes through, passes the desk of Sarah from a critical perspective. And it's all almost like, you know, having another supervisor on my team because it just pushes me critically to be better and better. Um, so I, th I think that, you know, ultimately is, is good aspect. I'm brutal, though, aren't I? You're brutal, yeah. I only have a tantrum once. He's not done a spell check. And he's at least passed it through once. I can't be bothered. I'm like, I just go straight back. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Send it to me when it's legible. <laughs> but it's good. It's good, right? When it comes to the give and take of relationships, when it comes to that drawing of the line, and it sounds to me, number one, you guys get on, but number two, you've got an immense sense of respect for each other because you can only push those boundaries when you truly respect each other because otherwise the dynamic would break down incredibly quickly. And look, we all need a timeout once in a while, whether it's a professional mm. working relationship or you just got to take the dog for a walk, whatever it may be. It's that coming together afterwards and going, okay, I've had a breather. Let's look at that next bit and maybe I can help you on this. Or, you know, I thought this was going to be the best thing in the world and you've kind of shot it down. But actually you've got a point the way we've said it. And there's a dynamic that we have in, in personal relationships, which outside of the workplace gives us that little um, additional bit of license because it's done with that. I, I believe that extra level of empathy and respect because you see what the other person's going through, not just in the nine to five and all those crazy extra hours that PR yeah. professionals do, but it's those those moments. It, sometimes people go into the office and you have a rough interaction with someone and it's like, well, why is that happening? And the walls go up. But actually, because you know what's happening in the other person's life so intimately, there's that, again, I'll lean on the empathy word, because you get it yeah we cut we catch each other yeah yeah we cut we catch each other when that's the case i mean i think the other thing is that's really important we both have very very much shared values i mean very much have a shared vision for our industry you know we've worked in it long enough we've been close enough to the data we've done our bits we've built different things we've staged private interventions you know it's all about how can we be better and how can we help others be better so leaving that ladder down and because that's always what we're focused on often we might come at something from a different perspective but there's always that meet in the middle bit and i think that i think if we didn't have that shared vision things could be quite different mm. but you know we've got a lot of commonality in that respect in that sense of having a shared vision what was the last thing you disagreed on and how did you get to the middle ground of one or other of you being right this isn't in the script. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, what usually happens is something comes up. Sarah says how it's going to be. I suggest, 
yeah I suggest how it's going to be <laughs> he tries to compromise and then we go with whatever I would like <laughs> which is the right answer <laughs> yeah 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 no but um what did we disagree on last probably we've just been doing our 2024 business planning like everybody else uh, and so, you know, yeah, budget, what we're going to focus on, what's important, what's the priority, what's our next three months look like. I mean, it's quite difficult to predict, mm. you know, one, three, five year plans, but we're, we're looking at that and we do a lot of teachers and foresight work for clients. So, of course, we do it for ourselves, too. Um, but um, so, you know, we've had some robust discussion about that. And uh, Stephen went away just this morning with a with a new jobs list. <laughs> But it's all good. No, but we we talk about everything. Like like you said, we, we, if he has to storm out and have a dog walk, or if I go to a combat class, we'll come back and you can then talk about things sensibly. So you know, find another way to blow off the disagreement. No, absolutely. So, um, if there's one thing that I associate with with you both from reading what you've written pieces on social media when you're when you're speaking and uh, delivering programming social mobility really um uh, comes into the sense of of what you do um why is it important to you before we get into that space and I'll start with Stephen on this one um first reason is it's it, you know it's the right thing by society i think the research was done originally in the 80s that said if you wanted to run a best practice communication team public relations team um you needed to to represent the public that you were uh, trying to engage with um here we are what 30 40 years later and suddenly we've, we've woken up to this in the industry uh dni initiatives tend to focus from initially from the perspective of ethnicity um, um but you know the socio-economic dimension is is really important um why is it important to us particularly because we're both from working class backgrounds both had comprehensive education both been driven by learning and at various stages during our careers uh, and education being inspired by people who've pushed us and driven us driven us and now driving each other um and it's part of our payback we sat there during covid looking at the industry and this has been, been a particular issue of of sarah's in wanting to address um since you know she dug into the data 10 years ago around it um and built this platform called called socially mobile and at that point i'll let sarah pick up the story yeah, I just, I'm still pained by the idea of the 80s being so far away, has it? Like 30, 40 years. And yeah, actually, it's probably true. Well, that's that's a piece of work, though, that around DNI, DNI is a good thing for society and for communication teams. That was established as absolute fact in the 80s. And here we are talking about it as if we, you know, it's a contemporary issue we need to address. It's, it's rubbish. Uh, sadly, it is. I mean, the long and short of it is we know that education is the greatest leveller. And actually, if we unlocked diversity of teams within organizations, whether it was PR organization or general business, our economy would be doing an awful lot better, so long and short of it. As Stephen says, you know, our backgrounds um, aren't what people necessarily assume when they meet us now. You, you tend to get judged on how people find you now. And you know, I got a council grant to go to university. If I hadn't yes, had sir. that, my, my life now would probably be very, very different. And 
quite frankly, oh, I'm getting goosebumps, I'm getting really cross. Quite, quite frankly, I believe that when you get to a certain point in the industry and you've got influence, it's your absolute duty of care to look out for other people and to level the playing field for them. Because I know how difficult it is just to get to the starting line for some people. And my background, difficult as it was at times, was certainly not as challenging as some of the people background that we see on socially mobile so you know there's a lot of intersectionality you might get someone who is um from a lower socioeconomic background who might also be disabled or you know might be from an underrepresented group or you know there's, there's all sorts of different things and depending where you are in terms of place you know certain regions aren't as well served as, as it might as you might be in the capital or uh, um and so all these things really impact people's careers so socially mobile i've been since Certainly, since the last 10 years, and I've been reading about the data, but certainly since 2017-18, when I was in the process of becoming and then becoming CIPR president and really looking at the data from both the PRCA and the CIPR and more widely in creative industry reports, I just couldn't sit still any longer. And I did actually make some approaches um, within the industry to see if we could get something off the ground and, and got knocked back, which was out in probably in retrospect a really good thing because it just made me absolutely more mad and more determined and then Stephen got the brunt of it where we spent loads of weekends where the kids had to hang around while we had post-its all over the house of what the syllabus might look like and how it was going to work and you know what it it was good and it was good that COVID hit because we had a completely different business model um, for the initial concept and what we've settled on now has been a brilliant brilliant um, mechanism for helping people and it's absolutely right at the right time so the prca's own data from its census you know puts the number of people in the industry around ninety eight hundred thousand. you know it, it depends how you classify it but it, it's around a hundred thousand people um and um it a fifth of those 20 percent, and this is the me metric we typically measure uh socioeconomic diversity from through the lens of whether you attended a fee-paying school or not. So 20% uh, of people responding to the PRCA census in 2021 attended a fee-paying school. That's versus 7% in the population as a whole in the UK. That gap alone in the public relations industry, you do the maths, but it's around 13,000 people were missing. Um, so, you know, the data plainly speaks for itself. It just means that unless you've got some wealth behind you and you've got networks, you just can't get into the industry, let alone get ahead. And we're finding a lot. And there was a reason why socially mobile, we don't ask for any formal education. We ask for two years of tactical experience. Uh, and and it, it, we want to help the people who are just stuck. They're stuck in their role or in their job and they can't get into a strategic, more manage, managerial position, which would increase their earning potential. So ultimately... For those who are listening who haven't heard about Socially Mobile, it's a 10-week online training course, which has been likened to an SAS course. <laughs> By some, someone from the military, like, as okay. you said. Yeah. It's not meant to be easy. But, um, yeah, we move people from being really competent practitioners to a place where they can go and they can look at things from an organisational perspective and they have better leadership skills, better strategic skills, have a handle on finance and all the things that you expect with management competencies. I find this fascinating because just looking at my journey and I can only speak of my journey. I don't, I've not lived anyone else's life. I, you know, I was uh, born in the South of England. I went to a comprehensive school. Um, I tried my hardest, but what would now be diagnosed of, as being neurodivergent 
is, you know, I was categorized as dyslexic because there wasn't really a space for what I actually was. And then um, that was a barrier for me to go to um, university because the the support and the programming wasn't in place. And I'm so thankful that for many establishments there, they really are now. Um, and then when I started applying to um, organizations in our sector, um, it was like, what's your degree? What's your degree? What's your degree? And it was such a barrier, but I was so thankful because I was coming from a broadcast background that um, people knew me from, you know, the media relations side. And I came in through that direction. I did the classic dark side slide. And then when I (laughs) did come in, um, ended up working with all of the majors, build those interpersonal um, connections. And I couldn't be more thankful that when people just got to know me and didn't look at paper, um, which was my barrier, um, that we actually achieved great things. And now I work on the other side of a planet running something that's pretty cool. So I'm, I'm thankful that there were a few people who were willing to see what I was like tactically that then got me into the position of being more strategic. So I love but what you're doing. Dad, three points on that there. And I'm really glad that you got the break because mm. it, it is really difficult. But again, you had to rely on network. And so one of the things we tried to address is to create a community and a network for our socially uh, mobile alumni because a lot of them just don't have that or don't have the confidence to engage with people. They're more than more than capable these are you know people who have had success but they don't see it in terms of their success they see it as relative and so they don't reach out uh, and so one of the things i love to see is when our students are brave enough to start to interact with people and then all of a sudden it, you yes. can, it becomes a snowball it's wonderful and um it's it, that's just fantastic and we've worked really hard as well to make sure the courses as um, neurodivergent friendly as can be. Now that's difficult because it's so very individual. Um, but we we try to do everything we can and to make sure that um, if a student is prepared to share any particular needs, that we accommodate them. And I think that's really important. But what your experiences is illustrated so beautifully is I, I think the one bit where the industry is still failing. And for me, the big long term solution is we need the industry bodies to do more and more consistently in terms of opening access to the industry. And that requires every single PR employer to think differently, too. So not to think about education necessarily or certainly that that to one from the Russell group and not and maybe to do a bit of land recruitment. But for me, it's about if you're recruiting people, a different talent pool, what does that look like if you're taking someone at 16 from school? Yes, that's going to take a completely different way of thinking about how you recruit and how you retain people. Yes, it's going to cost you a little bit more upfront because you're going to have to develop a training program. But all these things really, really matter. And at the moment, we have an apprenticeship scheme through the PRCA, which is great. There are bits and bobs of different initiatives happening. When I was CIPR president, we joined up with PRCA and Career Ready to, to get career advice into, into schools and to offer internships to, to schools in disadvantaged areas. But that ran for a year. It, it doesn't work on a short-term yeah. basis. This needs to be something we completely invest in wholeheartedly and continually. So, so the lovely thing about your story, Dan, is that every student who joins the program has a story like that, and, and you know, we 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 share those through through impact reporting. Um, the crazy thing is about 
within our industry. And, and Sarah's described there are, you know, there's private, various private interventions, there's industry interventions, but there's no grand strategy for the industry to solve this problem. At the same time, employers, agency and in-house bemoan the lack of talent and you know is struggling to recruit we've got a particular issue at the moment because of covid um a, a, a sort of account manager communication manager level within the industry because there wasn't the opportunity for tacit learning or these people just weren't recruited in 2020 um so there needs to be some so we need to stop fiddling and do some some sort of grand strategy for for the industry and i think that's called it that has to come from government or industry associations just some strategic longer-term thinking would help, you know, not just being reactive that you either lose someone or someone goes off a long-term sick or you win a piece of business, so all of a sudden the knee-jerk reaction is to hire. I totally appreciate the commercial um, balance that you've got in terms of when, when to recruit. But actually, if you're continually building relationships with communities, and that includes minority ethnic communities or whoever it is that you would like to be as part of your representative workforce, that shouldn't just be a thing that you do when you have need. That's very cynical. Um, you know, we work really hard at Socially Mobile to try and keep in contact with our different communities, with people that we believe, you know, could benefit or might be able to help signpost people to us and vice versa. You know, we want this to be a, a, a starting block. So when people come out, they're then thinking about the next thing and we can say, did you know this might be suitable for you next? It just that there's just such a short termism that um, when I'm having a bad day, um, really turns me sour but then Stephen has to pick me up and, and then vice versa but actually it's it's what's nice is that the response to socially mobile has been so positive uh and the will is there and actually the generation of talent that's coming out I I'm heartened by every week because I just I know that they're the ones who will do things differently because they are going to be the different face of our industry and that's exciting it's exciting yeah they're, they're also tremendous advocates so having been through the program something happens during the program so to naturally build skills what sarah's talked about the cultural aspect as, as well and that's really really important um so you know everyone gains in confidence and you can see them just grow on on social media as they become braver and bolder and sharing their ideas and now we're at the point where you know hopefully we'll by the end of the year we'll graduate our hundredth graduate and and you know whenever now sarah or i share anything about the program you'll notice all, all our graduates pile in and you know they're incredibly generous in in guiding other people to the program so when it comes to technology, one of the things that that we have experienced is that revolution in just such a short period of time. We've seen generative AI really bringing something different to the table. And I will say purely on my journey, and, and believe me, this isn't all about me, but it's just my perspective. The tools that it's given me um, to break through sometimes the word blindness that I get or get through those moments where the idea just isn't there. To be able to effectively what I call brain fart into a keyboard and then suddenly it spurs me into that next step. Um, how do you feel that generative AI tools have changed the game in some way? And are there AI tools beyond generative that you've seen that, are really there, not only helping people, but helping the industry think differently. What I would say about that is um, 
do you know what's been beautiful? I'm not massively technically minded, but one of the things that has been really inspiring has been watching our socially mobile students because they've got um, a dedicated community in Guild. So thanks to Guild for that because they, they grant us that. That's part of their, their give back and it's a really valuable safe space for students. But they talk about the issues they face, like the, the challenges that you've mentioned, and they talk about what tools they use. And it is quite incredible about how they have very quickly adopted and adapted um, their practice because of the tools that are on the market. Now I'm going to give a quick plug because um, we've just through Futureproof published a, a new book which has a whole raft of um, AI tools that can be used within the PR industry and we will be releasing a chapter per month on the blog free of charge because I mean at the moment day, it's on Amazon there's a, there's a charge um, say that again sorry Steve? Per day from, from... Per day yeah so there'll be a chapter a day so it will be accessible to everybody but um, yeah, I think what's been really good is to say that this new generation of tools, while we have to be careful and ethically minded about how they're used, is actually showing that they can be a game changer for, for practitioners. Stephen, I know you have much more to say on that. Um, so, yeah, if anyone has any uh, neurodiversity issues related to writing, so dyslexia, um or, or so forth now you know the basic tools within any word processor uh, will provide huge support um with that in turn in terms of helping you um you know proofread a, effectively proofread a, a piece of copy i mean uh, the latest version of word will even read it to you um and and spot out any or call out any issues um and you know then there's a whole range of tools on top of that, um, such as Grammarly, that will help you with style and so forth. So, yeah, it's a huge level in in that sense. Um, we're only just starting. I mean, ChatGPT is a year old, right? So we're only just starting to see the impact, really, of the potential of this this type of technology. Um, and, yeah, from, from a brainstorming, content-creative um, perspective, if you want to produce the first draft of anything, it seems to be um, hugely beneficial. Um, have to say, you know, we've done a lot of experiments with it, working with clients as well, um, and often the content or the quality is quite low. So, um, you know, there are it's not without issues. It will make stuff up, uh, even when you feed, you know, ChatGPT or Claude from Anthropic. Even when you feed it with a data set, it will make stuff up if it doesn't isn't able to find the right answer for you um so that's a big concern um you know so so it's not without its issues you focus on as as many people do on generative ai i think reductive ai is where the real power of this technology lies and that you know sees its application in management in helping us make you know under, understand large data sets whether they be you know an excel spreadsheet um or a, a document and, and you know We've done some terrific work um, in summarization, feeding it, feeding, you know, Claude or ChatGPT, you know, 80-page um, um, policy document and uh, querying it and asking it for the key arguments, the key weaknesses, red teaming it, asking it from different stakeholders, for, for a different stakeholder perspectives, how you'd undermine it if you wanted to 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 criticize the, the document. It can be incredibly powerful from that perspective and quick. And that's the terrifying, the speed of it is is incredible. So this is interesting, you say, could you do the full 360 on the conversation? 
he's a tink he's like a proper tinkerer so he will tinkerer that's so that's so geordie but basically it's true there isn't it any tool will come out i'll have a little play i'm like that Do you know what this everybody else needs to go and tinker with that some some big tool some big system will come and absorb that yeah come back in nine months time (laughs) and there's a nice little package for me but he'll have been through every single one of them and it works it works really really well i think that from what i've seen when uh we've put in uh documents i spoke to my friend who works for um who's a representative of a union and uh, they put in a cba into um chat gpt and they queried it and they threw different scenarios at it and it was really fascinating because the the speed it was coming to conclusions based on that single source of information it was it was kind of that 99% but it needed that 1% of context and i think that next that next space this next generation will be i'd love it to say i don't know or i need more information to contextualize this that that flag that's needed because because what we were talking about was yes it's fantastic. We're a year in. Yes, machine learning's been running for a very long time, and many people don't realize that. You know, when I was in working in med tech, the starts, and that's many, many years ago, the starts of that learning were, was going there with the universities doing incredible work. Um, but that bit, the the human bit, where hopefully we all get to the point of going, I don't know, I think yeah. that's the piece that the AI space still needs uh, before we go off a cliff with, okay, it's right, clearly it's technology, let's go with it. Rubbish in, rubbish out. We all know that one. So, but Dan, very good point, well made. Um, these machines don't have emotional intelligence and, and that's, the, that's the line between <laughs> human sense. Neither do loads of people I know. <laughs> <laughs> granted, granted, granted. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, you've made me cry a little bit. It's so true. Um, <laughs> so from um, Socially Mobile, do you have any graduates who have been through any, uh, could you speak to me about any Socially Mobile graduates who've been on a journey, who've um, really been able to uh, go from one you know, from where they started to their to their outcomes, and maybe what does it one that includes how AI has helped them? I hadn't thought about the AI angle, but the, the immediate one that comes to mind is we got an email from a graduate who emailed to say, "I just wanted to thank you because I managed to get a new job and I've been able to come off universal credit, and now my kids and I." you know, can just afford to do a little bit more and it's completely changed our life. So that that's aside to the to the tool element, but that's the kind of outcomes that we're getting. Now we're not trying to get everybody to change jobs, not and that's not what everybody's goal is. Um, you know, it could be that they just need a, a, to improve their confidence, improve their skill set, look for promotion internally. Or they might have long term goals to set up their own business. Perhaps they do want to move job. But um so we try and help people in the best way they can. But the outcomes have been superb. I do know um, we had a lady who was neurodivergent and um, she uses a number of different tools and she's now moved into a new job. And we had a gentleman with a disability similarly who started to use different tools, um, built himself a kind of tool stack um, to help him because he's really struggled to, to maintain employment. But that, that's the way that he's been going to demonstrate how he can compete 
in the workplace. Yeah, we have to be a little bit careful with specific cases because of privacy. But you know, we we impact we report on our progress annually, and the last impact report published in March um, for the first fifty students from twenty twenty two suggested that a quarter of them had graduated and um, got a new role or promotion, um, increasing their earning potential. Which is, you know, ultimately the goal. Um, you know, so so we're we're um, absolute um, in in tracking the progress of of students. Um, yeah, you've just kind of got into a space. I'm currently working on an impact report, and there's certainly. Um, a big space where lots of organizations have the opportunity to crow about what they're doing and really, really bang the drum for themselves. But objectivity clearly matters. It's critical. And really taking that honest look on your organization. When you're producing an impact report, do you think that um, there's an element that third-party review really matters because sometimes when we self-report there's that risk that we can bang our drum without listening to those who we feel we're benefiting without having their voice in it so so dan good point um very very good point especially in this era of esg where uh, organizations as you suggest are marking their own homework and taking a favorable perspective i'd say in the case of socially mobile it's community interest companies so you know the governance is set out in law um we are held to account uh, by a board um, um you know a group of individuals who who ultimately scrutinize our work and then yeah we have a steering group don't we and then there's a then there are a series of communities um, around the organization, um, the assessors who assess people coming onto the program uh, for fit, and then the examiners who mark the homework, mark, you know, the coursework along the way. Um, you know, that group numbers around 60 people. They are our critics and are, uh, if you like, callers to our account. And, you know, we Checks and balances. Can certainly tell you there can be no bullshit with any of them. Because they, they, especially the examiners, they are robust. You know, they take a pride in what they do and what they're contributing to. Because you know, almost everyone uh, works voluntarily for for the community interest program. Apart from, uh, we have a program manager who's who's paid. But you know, it, it's a valid point, and we've thought really hard about that. I'm going to shift us ever so slightly. You. Your your footprints um, kind of bring us together with CIPR and PRCA, two very strong representative bodies, two bodies that have historically uh, challenged for a very similar space and at the same time have also, through strong leadership, um, have collaborated and, and looked at that space to benefit all. Um if I could start with um, this question, what are your thoughts on the trade bodies and really helping the industry move forwards? Yeah, my view on membership of any um, body is that you've got to be very strategic and commercial in how you approach it. If, you know, people talk a lot about value for money, but you have to want to get something out of it. To, to get the best, you know, the more you put in, the more you get out is what I say. It's a bit like a gym membership. You're not going to get value if you don't tip up and go and do your spin class in the morning. You're just going to get fat. 
and lazy. Um, it's uh, it's true though. So my view is that you need to decide why you're joining it and what your vision is. And is it for personal development? Is it commercial development? Because that will change how you interact. You know, the CIPR, for example, when I first joined, when I first set my business up way back in 2009, you know, that was because partly I wanted to build my network outside the region. But secondly, it offered a legal helpline that I knew just by way of membership. If I had an employment issue, I could call it. And so that immediately, you know, cancelled out any legal costs that I would otherwise have had. That was a big, big benefit for me. And and so that you have to think about what what is it you need and what will, as you say, take you forward either as your you as an individual or your business. Um, and you know, if it's if it's about talent acquisition, how do you get involved? If it's about your own professional development and you're like us and a bit nerdy and interested in the future of the industry and want to be part of the what next, you know, is it that you need to join one of the panels or even form one of the panels? Um, you know, so they, they have really important roles, but the one thing that any organization, any membership organization has to be very considerate of is not to lose sight of who they're there to serve and also what is coming around the corner because Membership bodies, and I'm also, I should say, uh, I'm an ambassador for the Institute of Directors. I'm on the interim management board for the PRCA. You know that we've both served as past presidents for the CIPR. But they do go through a life cycle and, you know, it gets a bit bumpy way, depending on, you know, what the strategic vision is and how good the people at the helm are. It can nosedive quite quickly when there seems to be an element of complacency um, sinks in. Now we're not there at the moment, but you've, you've, we've got to be very considerate of that. And um, if you're an industry leader and you think you've got something to give, you know, do do get involved. As, as I always say, don't just cop by the sidelines. Get in there and help clean it up. So during this conversation, we've t- we've talked about some big structural issues within our our profession. Um, you know, not least talent alignment with management, our own reputation, um, professional development. You know, these are big issues that no one individual within the industry can can solve. Um, you know, we do we do our bit through various different initiatives that are aligned to our own personal values. There is an absolute requirement for an industry association and a professional association. Um, and, you know, there's some big structural issues and challenges we we need to address to to grow the profession uh, and elevate it within management um you know this constant discussion about whether and it's gone quiet at the moment but whether you know there should be only be one i think is a bit of a zero sum game this you know there's a, 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 a um, there's room for as many organisations uh, as are aligned to the challenges of, of the industry as long as they're facing in the right direction. Um, you know, I think we've got a particular issue at the moment um, with representation and engagement with with government, but, you know, our government has its own challenges there. Uh, I'd like to see more effort there and I'd like to see more effort around, you know, as being raised within management. And that's where, yeah, that's where yeah. I'm focused. The value to business, yeah. Oh, look at that. We completely agreed on something, Stephen. <laughs> Dan, can you edit that out, please? <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to social mobility, do you think that there's not only a responsibility from uh, the organisations, but also a sense of an opportunity because of their connective tissue and the way that they truly do interconnect into organisations to 
advocate for those who are not having the opportunities that could be in front of them to be an industry voice to say, hey, with the right um, support within your organization, you could help, you know, bring people along on their journey to break through those glass ceilings, to get to that next level, to really, rather than, you know, hire cycle every time there's a contract, but really bring people on. So it brings what you've said together, but at the same time, do we need more from the associations? Uh, leading question, Dan, uh, but the answer is yes. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> um, uh, I'd like to say more role models. Can we interview you, know, you? Because you give you give good quotes. I, I, just, no, I was just going to say that, you know, remember when we first launched Socially Mobile and you talked about how you hadn't really talked about your own mm. career, career path and your background and how courageous it, there is an element of courage that comes with the vulnerability that's needed to talk about the stories mm. and the number of people we had separately privately say just so you know i would like to support because this is my story but i don't want it to be public mm. we've got to get still over happens. that still yeah it was just there is no shame attached to being from somewhere where you did not have the advantage of other people in fact you're more of a success story than those people have made it on the back of the wealth and the comfort that they had and we've just got to change the narrative on that so in short as Stephen says yes we need to do more uh, again back to recruitment and procurement we need to think about how we bring people in if that's a 16 year old white lad who's left school you know at, at 16 we need to think about what it looks like and really um find some ways of helping organizations change their their whole practice around re- recruitment training and um retention so so 100,000 people in our profession we are training through apprenticeships around 300 a year it's barely touching the sides we're making you know we're addressing that mid-career aspect we need more scale there too um now we're doing as much as we can through through socially mobile but those two intervention points are really really important as you suggest which sorry i was a bit flippant but as you suggest dan um you know the body, the industry bodies and associations have the scale to make difference and affect change, um, and yeah, it would make make sense for them to 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 be part of that action. Um, I have to say, you know, from socially mobile perspective, the CIPR and the PRCA are both huge supporters of what we do. Yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah, they offer membership to 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 all our graduates. Sorry, our, our graduates, the, are the fully funded, funded graduates. graduates. Yeah, we have we have a number so you can actually it's a bit like the Thomas program you know where you buy a pair of shoes and someone gets one um who needs them you know basically we do offer paid places so either people can buy their own or their employers can sponsor them 695 a place and um basically that helps make the CIC the community interest company sustainable but it also enables somebody else to, to get a place but we do offer a significant number of fully funded places to those who are deserving of rear um, and what happens is anybody who's fully funded, when they graduate, they get um, membership with the PRCA and the CIPR for a year. And we also have wonderful support from AMEC who offer everybody access to their um, foundation in, in measurement <laughs> program. And, and that's massive because that's like a really important, you know, planning and insight and measurement is how we're going to speak management language. So it's, the, it's a perfect next step for people who've managed to come off the 10-week programme and, and want to continue learning. Final point here, I think, and I think we both found this as 
when we served as presidents of the CIPR, you're in for a year and these challenges are taking, these these issues that we're talking about are generational issues. So there's a, you know, if I were to criticise the CIPR and the PRCA, you need a strategy that's focused on 10 or 20 years, not a year, because you can't, you can't affect the change that's needed in that time. It's going to take generations. When it comes to things that inspire you or sources of media that you consume, or maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's um, the arts, prose, literature, whatever it is, what do you really consume that inspires you, informs you and makes you think, ah, that feels better. Often we look at content as what I gain from it in terms of intellectually or in terms of latest information. What makes you feel good as content that you consume? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I read a heap of The Guardian. I'm quite lefty in views. It won't surprise anybody. I share lots of its contact, content. Um, do I feel great about it? A lot of the time, not. <laughs> but it does give me um, views on what's going on out there, outside in the world, that kind of do align a little bit more with mine and my values. Um I am in the process of becoming um, a professional coach as well. And actually, a lot of the reading that they ask you to do around that is really, really great. And that makes you feel good, actually. And it, you realize how much good coaching practice can impact you, not just within the workplace, but in your entire life. So you, there's a very famous book you may have heard of called um, by Stephen Covey. And it's The Seven Habits. I always call it Seven Habits, but it has got a longer title. But if you were to Google it, you would find it. And it's and they've got a version as well that his son brought out, which is the Seven Habits of Effective Teenagers. And it's just about how the paradigm through which you see life, and and it challenges you to think outside of those and that really challenge your values and, and what matters to you. And I literally had an aha moment. I, I've actually now got it on. Um, uh, so I can listen to it when I, on Audible when I'm uh, walking the dog as well. And I often go back to it because I do find it very affirming and it really makes me think differently and stop me reverting back to old habits. So for me, that has been something that's been, I feel like I've become a better person because of this professional journey I've gone on, but I can see myself parenting better too and being a better wife and being a better sister and a better daughter and that's, I mean, what a fantastic unintended consequence. Sarah and Stephen, thank you so much for joining us here on Fused. If people want to find out more information and how to get in touch with you, how could they do that? So I'm at Mrs. Underscore Wads on X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, but we've also got the wads.co.uk website where you'll find out all about us. If you want help with your company direction, you want some coaching or you want to know about Socially Mobile, you can also go to the Socially Mobile website too. Uh, which is sociallymobile.org.uk and um, take a good look. We're taking applications at the moment for our cohorts next year. If you find Sarah, you'll find me. Well, he's just at Wads. <laughs> Very easy. <laughs> at Wads and at Mrs. Underscore Wads. Can't go far wrong, really. Thank you, Sarah and Stephen, so much for joining us here on Fuse. And thank you to you. You'll find this episode and many others on the PRCA's YouTube channel, iHeartRadio podcast list, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you choose to download your podcasts. 
everything is linked from pkrca.org.uk and alongside myself, Farzana Badwell has done a number of incredible interviews with guests here on Fuse. If you do like what you hear, please do share this so we can grow our community. And if you have feedback or topics that you would like us to cover, then do get in touch. The information is there in the show notes. We publish interviews every two weeks, so please stay tuned as we have some very inspiring stories in the pipeline.